Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, episode number 90. Who is this Khrushchev guy anyway? Well, last episode, we saw how Nikita Khrushchev began his consolidation of power by taking out Georgi Malenkov and diminishing the influence of Vyacheslav Molotov. Now, I know I ended last week's podcast by saying that this week I'll be talking about the Soviet Union's next big crisis, the Hungarian Revolution. But that won't be happening today. Sorry, but I think I jumped the gun, as I haven't said much about the background of the man who'll be running the country for the next few years, Nikita Khrushchev. So, how did this son of poor peasants, Sergei Khrushchev and Ksenia Khrushcheva, rise to the pinnacle of power in the Soviet Union? The story is as unbelievable as any fiction novelist could dream up. Born on April 15, 1894, in the town of Kalinovka, a little village in what is now Russia's Kursk Oblast, near the Ukrainian border. The abject poverty of Kalinovka was profound. Eking out a living was extremely difficult for most, if not all the inhabitants of this small, remote town. Now, to understand what we mean by abject poverty, I'm going to read to you a turn-of-the-century account of the living conditions. Cottages, having no chimneys, are still very common. Almost all have thatched roofs, which often lean, and in the winter, the walls are generally covered with dung to keep the place warm. A peasant family sleeps in two tiers, on benches and on bunks, behind the stove. Bathhouses are practically non-existent. They almost never use soap. Skin diseases, syphilis, epidemics, undernourishment. Such foodstuffs as meat, meal, bacon, and vegetable oils appear on the family table only on rare occasions, perhaps two or three times a year. The normal fare consists of bread and cabbage and onions, to which fresh vegetables may be added in autumn. Now, if you're wondering what kvass is, it's a non-alcoholic beverage brewed from bread, of all things. And growing up as a kid, I wasn't too uh, fond of it, so not a really pleasant thing to uh, have to consume. Well, Kalinovka had about 1,200 residents with about 156 peasant huts, which means about eight people to each hovel. The size of each hut was about 15 to 20 feet in length and width. Quite often, especially in the winter, they would sleep alongside their animals as well. Shoes for children were called lapti, much more like moccasins than real shoes. They were made of bark and would regularly fall apart in rain or snow. As Khrushchev recalled in his memoirs, quote, Every villager dreamed of owning a pair of boots. We children were lucky if we had a decent pair of shoes. We wiped our noses on our sleeves and kept our trousers up with a piece of string. Literacy was rare. Only 5% of the townspeople could read. It lasted four years as they needed to be on the farms to keep up their meager standard of living. His family eventually moved to Yuzovka in 1908 where his father worked in the mines. This type of work was brutally hard and paid very little. Ksenia, Nikita's mother, began to blame their poverty on his father, 
putting them down all the time. This reminds me of my parents when I was young, and we were poor, just five years after they emigrated to the United States. When Khrushchev's father died of tuberculosis in 1938, he was buried in a Moscow cemetery, but no one went to visit the grave. To this day, no one seems to know where his body lies. Such was the disdain for the man during his lifetime. According to Khrushchev, his revolutionary mind was inspired by a schoolteacher in Kalinovka, Lydia Mikhailovna Shevenko. As she recounts, I first, as he recounts, excuse me, I first saw banned political books at Lydia's house. Once I called on her, and she introduced me to her brother, who was visiting from the city and lying in bed. This is the boy I told you about. He is asking me for forbidden pamphlets, she said. Her brother smiled and replied, Give him these. Perhaps he'll make some sense of them, and when he grows up, he'll remember. By the time World War I had broken out, Nikita was a skilled metal worker, which exempted him from the draft. In 1914, he married Yevfrosonia Pisareva. In 1915, they had a daughter, Yulia, and in 1917, a son, Leonid. By this time, Khrushchev was already involved in workers' strikes, and he was elected to the Workers' Soviet and Ruchevenkova, and in May he became its chairman. He was a natural leader, which would become very apparent in the upcoming Russian Civil War. He joined the Bolshevik Party in 1918, hesitating between the Mensheviks and his eventual choice. Because of the starvation and devastation to the countryside during the war, Efrosinia, his wife, died of typhus in Kalinovka while Khrushchev was in the army. His upbringing in poverty made Nikita understand the Bolshevik belief that the peasants were, quote, dangerous reactionaries as prisoners of what Marx called the idiocy of rural life. He gradually moved up the ranks of the party, eventually becoming a member of Stalin's inner circle. From here, I'd like to read a section of William Taubman's biography of Khrushchev to get an understanding of the man who would lead the USSR. One evening in November 1957, he seemed in what witnesses described as a particularly buoyant and garrulous mood, and with good reason. A few months earlier, he had thwarted an attempted Kremlin coup against him. More recently, he had fired the top Soviet military man, Marshal Georgi Zhukov, who had become too powerful and popular for his own good. With guests milling around him, Khrushchev recounted a story by the Ukrainian writer Vladimir Vinichenko that he said he had read when he was young. Once upon a time, Khrushchev said, there were three men in a prison, a social democrat, an anarchist, and a humble little Jew, a half-educated fellow named Pinya. They decided to elect a cell leader to watch over distribution of food, tea, and tobacco. The anarchist, a big burly fellow, was against such a lawful process as electing authority. To show his contempt for law and order, he proposed that the semi-educated Jew, Pinya, be elected. They elected Pinya. Things went well, and they decided to escape. But they realized that the first man to go through the tunnel would be shot at by the guard. They all turned to the big, brave anarchist, but he was afraid to go. Suddenly, 
Poor little Pina drew himself up and said, Comrades, you elected me by democratic process as your leader, therefore I will go first. The moral of the story is that no matter how humble a man's beginning, he achieves the stature of the office to which he is elected. That's little Pina. That's me. According to a Central Intelligence Agency personality sketch prepared for President Kennedy prior to the Vienna summit in 1961, the story the Soviet leader told revealed consciousness of his humble origin and his sense of personal accomplishment, plus his confidence that his vigor, initiative, and capacity were equal to his station. But was he really so confident? Did the story not imply that because of his humble origin, and despite his vigor, initiative, and accomplishments, Khrushchev was far from certain of his capacities? To appreciate that possibility, consider the rest of the Vinichenko story. The title, Talisman, suggests that Pina's transformation is nothing short of incredible. For Pina is not just an ordinary underdog, he is the saddest of sad sacks. When he worked as an apprentice for a tinsmith, his boss beat him about the head with a soldering iron, while other tormentors smeared his sore lips with salt and forced him to eat out of a dog's dish. All these he endured silently, telling himself, Some people are bigger, richer, and more powerful, and some are smaller, poorer, and weaker, but you, Pina, are the smallest, poorest, and weakest of all. To his fellow prisoner's mockery, Pina responds with sadly obsequious smiles. The idea of electing him as their leader is the biggest joke of all. He wasn't suited for the job. He didn't know anything. He was only an ill-educated worker. But overnight, Pina proves himself efficient, responsible, decisive, and bold. Without question, says Vinichenko's narrator, what happened was a miracle, the kind that occurs in fairy tales when the hero a lousy, beaten-down, spot-upon Vanya the Fool suddenly obtains a talisman from somewhere and turns into a famous hero and heir to the imperial throne. If Khrushchev really saw himself as Pina, as a poor little Jew, no less, in a land in which anti-Semitism ran deep, his doubts about himself were more profound than he ever admitted. Moreover, the end of Pina's story foreshadows Khrushchev's own fate. By insisting on being first through the tunnel, Pina ensures his own martyrdom, while he grabs the sentry's rifle and sinks his teeth into the guard's leg, his fellow prisoners escape. Before Pina himself can get away, three other guards approach and club him to death. Like Pina, Khrushchev rose from the humblest of backgrounds to unimaginable heights. Not only did he reach Stalin's inner circle and survive nearly two decades there, he also bested Kremlin rivals who seemed far more likely than he to succeed Stalin. Khrushchev tried bravely to humanize and modernize the Soviet system. Having served Stalin loyally for nearly three decades, he unmasked him and helped release and rehabilitate millions of his victims. Whereas Stalin was largely responsible for triggering the Cold War, Khrushchev tried awkwardly to improve relations with the West. He also attempted to revitalize areas of Soviet life, agriculture, industry, 
and culture, among others, that had languished under Stalinism. Well, that's the reading, and I, I really strongly uh, suggest you get the book Khrushchev and His Man, uh, The Man and His Era by William Taubman. Uh, you just really would enjoy it. It is a large, long book, uh, but it gives you great insight into this man, uh, which I didn't have an appreciation for until I read the book and uh, Khrushchev's uh, memoirs, which you can find. I found him, uh, many copies used out there, uh, you know, pretty inexpensive on Amazon, so you might want to try it there. Uh, next week, we will be going to the uh, Hungarian Revolution. That is, if I can get the recording in. Uh, the Schaus family has moved to uh, New Digs, and so we're going to be setting up, uh, you know, Internet service and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to get the script done, but if we can't, you'll know why. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, please visit uh, your fellow listeners at the Russian Rulers History Podcast Facebook group or go to the website at RussianRulersHistory.com where you can ask a question, leave a comment, or make a suggestion. So now, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.